Do you ever notice that in every, well, in almost every movie, there is a love interest? You can't have a movie without a love interest, without a romance side of the story for some reason. Even if there's shooting and guts and gore, there has to be a love interest for the ladies. <laughs> well, even the Bible itself has a little bit of romance from the Garden of Eden to Abraham and Sarah, from David and Bathsheba to the Song of Solomon. The scriptures show God's high view of marriage. At the very beginning, God instituted marriage when Adam needed a helper to tend the garden. He saw that he was alone. He needed somebody who could compliment him so that these two people could come together, not compliment him as in speaking highly of him, but to be a companion, to almost complete him. From the beginning, marriage has been God-ordained as a beautiful and wonderful thing where two people come together to become one. And in this morning's all-too-familiar passage, I'm sure, we see the wonderful picture of marriage. We see the wonderful picture that marriage shows us and why this passage even matters to single people. It's not just for the married folk in the church, but for everybody. Why does this matter? And this is framed in, well, all of Ephesians. We've been going through Ephesians for the last, I don't know, I've lost track. Uh, since September, we're close to being finished. It's been f wonderful preaching through this book. But he's framing this particularly in what he talked about at the beginning of, of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We saw how he, in, in chapter 2, he said, you've been, you've been saved by grace. You've been made alive together with Christ. He's talking about the new creation throughout Ephesians where Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus initiated, began, inaugurated the new creation where God is making all things new. That's manifested in people being made alive together with Christ, we saw in chapter 2. He says, you've been saved by grace. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We are His workmanship. We're being created back into the... We're being restored into the image of God, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, be imitators of God. Karl Barth said that to be a true human means to have good action. A true human is characterized by good action, just as God is characterized by good action. So Paul is framing it in this understanding of new creation, the triumph of God over the evil powers, restoring all things. Therefore, be imitators of God. Restore His creation. And he ends, last week we ended on, uh, on verse 21, where it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, that is, we're to think of up the needs of others as more important than our own. We're accountable to each believer. We're to be in unity. We're to be in harmony with one another. These are all the themes coming together in this wonderful book. As we look at this morning's passage, we want to keep this imperative in mind. The, the command, the imperative, 
to be imitators of God, reflect His character, walk in His footsteps, show what God looks like in the world. And according to the Apostle Paul, a key element to being an imitator of God is to submit ourselves to each other. The Trinity submits to each other in, in a mysterious way. not going to get into that. Here in the remainder of chapter 5, in the first nine verses of chapter 6, he narrows in and explains what does it look like to submit to each other? What, is it, what are the, uh, the, the specifics of the church, of the people in God's new creation, in God's new temple? Uh, some people call this the house code, the household of God code. Uh, just like in the first century where the father of the house would have a, the code, the, the, the way of living. Uh, when you're living in his house, this is the, when you're in his house, this is the way you live. It's the same with God. But uh, not necessarily a list of things to check off, which is what we talked about in Sunday school this morning. It's not necessarily about, it's not about legalism. It's about the spirit. It's about doing what is wise, as we saw in the last chapter. But uh, let's get into our passage this morning in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your Bible this morning, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that might be holy and without blemish, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed your vision for the world. And you're making all things new. Help us to see that, Lord. Open our spiritual eyes to understand spiritual things. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide. Grant us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Wives, Paul writes in verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why should wives submit to their, their husbands? Because as he writes in, Paul, uh, in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. In a similar fashion, as Christ, who is the head of the church, which is his body, and he is the Savior. Now, right at the get-go, I need to admit something to you. This is a difficult passage for me. 
There are many difficult things in the Bible that I would preferably wish were not there, that could be avoided, and this is one of them. It's a difficult passage, and it requires caution as we proceed, because it's a verse that has been used improperly. It's a verse to, that has been used to abuse women. Or the sentiment behind the verse has been used to abuse women, uh, to manipulate, to harass, and that's not right. That's not what Paul is saying. We have to remember the difficult thing with interpreting scriptures that we're entering into the world that is very different from our own. And we really want to get a sense of what is going on here. We're entering into a liter piece of literature that is over 2,000 years old. Wow. We, we cannot approach the text with our modern paradigms, our postmodern paradigms, I should say. That's, and th this is totally not, uh, not politically correct, what I'm going to say. Gender roles are not social constructs. Some part of a made-up oppressive patriarchy. Though there may be... Of course, that's a whole... It's a complicated topic. That whole thing about the, uh, the Me Too movement and all that. Horrible things as a result of the, uh, the horrible things happened because of the Me Too movement that, that brought about that movement. It's, it's horrible. The, the abuse of women is horrible. Is what I'm trying to get at. But what I'm trying to say is that we cannot approach the text at, at all. We can never approach the Bible with our own paradigms, with our own thinking about how we see the world. You know, we see the world and we want to bring it to the text. We can't do that. Gender roles are not a social construct, though the world tries to tell us that. It's not true. God has ordained men and women, and there's a specific purpose for each gender. And this command, the command for wives to submit to their husbands, is not po politically correct. It's offensive to society's current agenda that elevates men at the expense of, of bashing men. It's in the name of equality. And of course, again, it's a complicated issue, and I really don't want to risk simplifying it too much. But I fear that that is the, that that is the road that people want to go down is rather than having equality, which I wholeheartedly believe in, it's uh, women trying to take over and tell men, you know, get in your place. And I can understand why, uh, but we want to, God's view is different than that. It is, God does have a view of equality. We're going to get there, though. Society's view of gender roles, particularly in marriage, is not supported by Scripture. But before I get to that, let me say on an aside that the Bible does, in fact, speak highly of women. Luke's gospel is revolutionary in its inclusion of women. Read the first few chapters. Women are singing and, and speaking. It's wonderful. We see uh, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, the Virgin Mary, the prophet uh, Anna. This is quite revolutionary. Two women were witnesses of the resurrection. That was not unique 
uh, in the first century to accept the testimony of women. And yet the gospel writers do in fact accept the testimony of those two women who found the empty tomb. That's significant. Even in the Old Testament, though that society did have a different view than us of women, that doesn't mean that it's prescriptive. It doesn't mean that the way that society viewed women in that culture when the Old Testament was written doesn't mean that it's acceptable for today. God viewed women quite highly. They played an important role in God's plans of redemption. For example, Sarah, she gave birth to Isaac. And uh, Isaac married Rebekah, who, right, Rebekah? Uh, who had Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons of, uh, of Israel. So Sarah had a wonderful role to play in, in the plan of God. Moses' sister Miriam, though she did... Uh, she was a leader in Israel, though she faced judgment for her sinfulness. Nonetheless, she did play a leadership role, or Deborah in Judges. Ruth, the Moabite, had a very honorable character for not leaving her widowed mother-in-law. I think that's the only book in the Bible that's centered around women, is the book of Ruth, and it's a wonderful book. Ruth plays a very important role in, in the life of, in, in the history of redemption, she is a matriarch of the Lord Jesus. Even in the Hall of Fame, uh, pardon me, Hall of Faith, in Hebrews 11, Rahab is included on that list. She's from the book of Judge, uh, from Joshua. She wasn't an Israelite, but she welcomed in those, those Israelite men as they were passing through Canaan. And she's included in that list. So women are thought of quite highly in the Bible. But the concern here that, that is raised, and legitimately so, by Paul's command is, does the Bible consider women to be unequal with men then? Do women submit to their husbands because women are inferior to men and need their husbands to complete them? These are fair questions. They're legitimate questions. They need to be asked. And the Bible can handle such questions. So what does he mean by that? Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, first of all, there are a few things that it doesn't mean. And one scholar helps, me, helps us walk through this. He writes, it does not call for blind obedience. It does not make the husband the boss and the wife the servant. It does not lead to the wife's loss of herself or her identity. It does not mean that the wife loses her voice and the decisions are made unilaterally. It does not set the wife up for emotional, verbal, or physical abuse. Those are really good. It is not about putting the, the wife down. It's not about being patronizing, he's saying. I would further add uh, that it does not mean that all women submit to all men. Rather, it's the wife submitting to her one husband. And Paul does not have in mind that men are inferior, or pardon me, that women are inferior to men. He writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. 
for your all one in Christ Jesus. He has a very specific purpose for writing that, saying that the gospel creates a new social order, that the people of God in the church, as, as the people here gathered in this church, were presumably born of the Spirit, regenerated. That means that God's new creation people is being, God's new creation is manifested here. That means that anybody coming into this church is equal with the person they're sitting next to. There may be Jews and Greeks sitting next to each other. They're equal in Christ. There may be a slave and a slave master sitting next to each other, but they're equal in Christ. Male and female sitting next to each other, but they're equal in Christ. That's God's, that has been God's intention since the beginning. It's human beings that have twisted that and said that one gender is lesser than the other. That is not God's intention. He, when God said, I'm going to make them male and female in my image, that means equality. Both are made in the image of God. And that's wonderful. That is to be celebrated. There's a, there's a social, there's a, there's equality among its members. Nobody is superior to other members in the body of Christ, but even in the equality, even though we're all equal, there still seems to be a level of, I'm going to use the word hierarchy, but I don't mean that in a, uh, you know, that, how do I put this? It's not innate. It's not, uh, who, it's not about who we are as people. It's about what God has decided. It's the way that it functions, that there's a hierarchy in, the, in, in God's institutions. In the institution of the church, everybody's equal, but there are still leaders in the church, and the church members are subordinate. They must submit themselves to the leaders of the church. It doesn't mean the leaders of the church are superior doesn't mean that the members of the church are inferior. It's the way that God has intended the, the institution of the church. It's God-ordained. He writes in verse uh, 24, Christ is the head of the church. Christ is our head. We submit ourselves to Him. There is still that equality. We read in Hebrews that He is not ashamed to call us His brother, but at the same time, he is Christ. He is our King. We submit to Him. He became a human just like any of us. I will dare say that Christ considers Himself equal with us, and yet we still submit ourselves to Him. He says, the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the relationship for husband and wife is patterned after the relationship between Christ and and the church. And by that is meant that Christ is the head of the church and the church is subject to Christ. Christ has authority over the church just as husbands have a God-ordained authority over their wives. That gives me a bad taste in my mouth saying that out loud. But, I'm, but honestly, I cannot get away from what Scripture says. That does not make women inferior, and that does not mean that husbands can abuse their wives. It's about leadership. Okay, let's, what, let's answer what it means then. I've already said what it doesn't look like, but what exactly does it look like? Well, first, before I get there, 
I know I keep doing that. But there are so many things, there's a lot of things that are leading up to this. I want to mention one thing. I think we find this particularly difficult to deal with because it's a cultural, there's a cultural issue underlying here. Because watch, turn on the TV and watch any sitcom. And on almost every sitcom, the husband slash dad character is shown to be the idiot of the family. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the wife is the level-headed one, you know, come on, dear, you know, uh, kind of patronizing to her husband, um, level-headed. She is the mother to her husband along with her children. And that's not God's vision for marriage. It's not Paul's vision. It's not God's vision for a husband and wife relationship. God's vision for wives is to respect their husbands. I think, I honestly believe this is what Paul is getting at here. That, hus that wives respect their husbands. Meaning, do wives think that their husbands are smart enough? Do they trust their husbands? Or are they patronizing? Do they look down upon their husbands and treat them like one of the children? Does a wife appreciate her husband for who he is and to respect him and to trust him? Does she go out and bash him behind his back, gossip about him? That's, that's not Paul's vision for wives to go out and bash their husbands with their friends all the time, though there is a place for talking about things, but not gossiping. Of course, the wife, uh, pardon me, though this does not mean she loses her voice in the relationship, I'm not saying that. They play an equal role together. But at the end of the day, when the husband makes a tough decision, will the wife trust and support that decision? Or like I said, will she be out bashing him to others in public? That's an important question. Is there harmony? But husbands aren't off the hook either. Been talking about women a lot. Uh, husbands, as Paul commands, husbands are to love their wives in a way patterned after the love that Christ has for his people, the church, which is manifested by the fact that he gave himself for his people. We even saw that in, uh, in one of our songs. God or Jesus was emptied of his glory, he became a man to walk on earth in ridicule and shame, a ruler yet a servant. You know, my point is that we've been seeing this over and over again. We see this throughout Scripture, that Christ gave up his glory for the love of his church. He came, uh, came to earth, became a human. That's the pattern for the husband, to love his wife to give himself for his wife, to die for his wife, to die to himself for his wife. As Kathy Keller wrote, Paul's call for the husband to love his wife means that the husband is to be a servant leader, which means the husband is to be self-sacrificial. He is to think of the needs of his wife before his own. Just as Christ died for the church, gave himself for the church, 
Are husbands <coughs> willing to die for their wife and die to themselves to fulfill their needs? Husbands are to respect and trust their wife as well, to support them, to uphold them. That means they must not lord their authority over them. That's not what servanthood is. Servanthood is giving of oneself, not lording over. Jesus never lorded it over anybody. He was always, well, most of the time he was gracious. He was patient. And if husbands are showing love to their wives, this is, I've been told this anyways. Uh, not a marriage expert here. If husbands are showing love to their wives, it'll be easier for the wife to submit to her husband. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> as verse 28 says, Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves his body. This is also patterned after Christ's love for the church, which is his body. We are the body of Christ. He wrote about this in chapter 1. We are the body. He is the head. Life comes from the head. Well, back in that understanding anyways. Our life comes from our head. He gave himself for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is how much Christ loves his body. This is how much to the degree that he gave himself for her. To do what? To sanctify her, to cleanse her, to, to make her holy, to, to sanctify her, to cleanse her from all blemishes, to present her to himself in splendor. That is a wonderful picture of Christ's love for us, even if we reflect on that this morning. But that's how much he loves his body. That's how much he loves the people, his people. And this is the pattern for a husband. This is how much Christ values his body. Therefore, husbands are to value their bodies by loving their wives. And, he, and, and we see in the next few verses the theological reason for that. He writes, though, in verse 29, that therefore husbands are to love their wives, for as it says in verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We, we, we feed ourselves. We, we take care of our bodies. We try to stay healthy as much as we can. Shouldn't we do that in the relationship that we're in? He's saying, who actually hates their own body? Paul asks rhetorically. Christ nourishes and cherishes us because we're members of his body. 
Now, how does the husband love his own body when he loves his wife? Verse 31, which is a quotation of Genesis 2.24, is really the theological grounding, theological framework, understanding, foundation for this relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says in the following two verses, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, he says, Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the mystery of marriage is that it reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. What's going on in, in that quotation from Genesis? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A man and a woman come together and the two shall become one flesh, one body. You're loving the, the other half of your body, your flesh. And that's the mystery of marriage. It's reflecting the relationship between Christ and the church. The mystical union between Christ and the church is profoundly reflected in marriage, particularly the marriage between two believers. They become one body. Therefore, they must treasure each other since they are one. I like what one scholar, G.K. Beale, he notes some interesting theological points regarding the mystery of marriage. He makes this connection. We remember back in chapter 3 where he talks about the mystery made known and that mystery is that the Gentiles are included in the church. And he's making the connection here between mystery and chapter 5, the mystery of marriage, he says in, in verse 32, that this mystery is profound. He's making the connection between these two, uh, this, this scholar. He says, both concern the unity of diverse people groups, Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians 3, and married men and women in Ephesians 5. Further, uh, G.K. Beale notes, Paul is concerned to, to not only say that Christ has begun the new creational unity of fragmented humanity in general between Jew and Gentile, but also that he has begun to put back together the broken relationships within the family in particular. So what he's saying is that this new create this 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 original intention for humanity where all people groups can come together in harmony and equality that was the mystery revealed in Ephesians 3 the mystery revealed here now is that there is harmony between a man and a woman in marriage and that is the new creation coming forth where marriage like i said a few weeks ago my whiteboard was right here that's why i'm pointing toward my whiteboard where I was talking about that those who are not in Christ are empowered by the kingdom of darkness. They're empowered by the serpent in the garden. They're empowered by Satan. A marriage between two believers is ideally empowered by God and restoring God's intention for marriage. Further, he, he notes, we saw in chapter 3 that there are no divisions of people groups in the new creation, just as there were to be no such divisions in the first creation. Similarly, there was not to be any division between Adam and Eve <coughs> or between all subsequent marriages. 
In other words, with the beginning of the new creation through the resurrection of Christ comes the institution of harmonious marriages. It's, it's, there's a reason to push forward to have harmony, in other words. And this is why it's important for single people as well. Because God-honoring marriages, marriages that are empowered by the kingdom of light, by the kingdom of God, reflects the beauty of the mysterious relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage shows to those who aren't married Christ's love. And marriage ceremonies aren't just about the two people standing at the front coming together in holy union. It's about the whole people gathered together to see the love that Christ has for His church and the reciprocal love that the church has for its head, for her head. To see, uh, to see that the church is the bride of Christ. Marriage reflects past itself to show the wonderful union between Christ and the church. It's just like baptism or the Lord's Supper where those two things reflect past itself to show us a deeper uh, meaning behind, uh, to show us the deep meaning behind those two things, to show that's, that uh, we are, baptism shows us that we're washed in the blood of Christ and the Lord's Supper reminds us of the sacrifice that Christ uh, gave on the cross. And so marriage reflects also God's, uh, Christ's love. Let each of you love his wife as himself then, as Paul writes in verse 33, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I like again what G.K. Beale writes. He says, Christian mates, Christian partners, uh, uh, a couple, husband and wife, are part of the new creation. And the ethic regarding their marriage is a recapitulation of the original design of marriage in Eden, which pointed to Christ and the church. When conflicts enter the marriage relationship and divisions begin to occur, both partners need to remember that they have covenanted with each other before God to love each other, to remain loyal to that covenant, to continue to become one, and hence to maintain the peace of the new creation of which they are a part. Further, at the heart of Christian marriage is a new creational ethic that has the ultimate purpose of pointing to the relationship of Christ, the last Adam, to the church, the new Eve, in the new creation. Did you get that? Pointing to the relationship, the ultimate purpose of looking ahead to when Christ unites all things in himself to see the relationship between the last Adam and the last Eve. Christ and the church. Oh, I love that. So in other words, similar to being restored to the image of God, marriage between believers is the beginning, is showing the beginning of the restoration of God's original intention for creation. No, I'm not even going to say marriage. God's original intention for creation. Harmony, peace, love, Mutual love and respect for each other. And the gospel is revealed in this way. The gospel is revealed in marriage between believers. The gospel is God's deep, self-sacrificial love 
for His people. The Gospel is Christ's sacrifice for His people to make them holy. The love in marriage, especially between believers who ideally hold the principle of self-sacrificial love, reflects the Gospel because it reflects the love first from Christ and the reciprocal love from the church. 